welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Yesterday, White House Cybersecurity Coordinator Rob Joyce said there have been no cases of FISA being used improperly for political purposes, something President Trump may have been unaware of. Yesterday morning, hours before the House vote to extend FISA, which allows the government to intercept calls or emails from suspected foreign terrorists outside the U.S., Trump caused confusion over the bill by sending a tweet that resurrected prior claims of his that his campaign team had been spied upon. Soon after, he posted another tweet endorsing passage of the bill. And between the two tweets, he phoned House Speaker Paul Ryan to talk about the FISA bill, according to a Republican aide who spoke on condition of anonymity. Both the House and Senate passed the bill, and Senate leaders are planning to send it to the president's desk next week. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, intelligence officials call the FISA bill holy grail, a a crucial national security surveillance tool. Why so? Well, June, it's been a foundational part of intelligence gathering in the United States since the late 1970s, in particular the portion that's up for renewal now since 2008. This one allows the collection of uh, intelligence through a sort of vacuum cleaner-like gathering of electronic signals of, of non-Americans abroad. So it's a, uh, it's a way that we learn about terrorism, that we learn about other security threats, and it's the single most important source of intelligence that ends up in the president's daily brief. Ryan said that Trump had concerns about domestic parts of the program that actually weren't in the bill, and Trump tweeted that he personally directed the fix to the unmasking process, which Nancy Pelosi said was not in the bill. Can you sort that out for us? (laughs) Yes, I think I can. Uh, Pelosi is, of course, correct. The the so-called unmasking controversy uh, had nothing to do with the parts of FISA that were being debated and then eventually reauthorized uh, this week and next. And in fact, the the entire unmasking controversy is uh, much ado about nothing. This was then candidate Trump being worried that his campaign was being surveilled by the Obama Justice Department as as uh, President Trump's uh, cyber advisor indicated today, there's absolutely no evidence that that ever occurred, uh, nor that uh, identities of individuals were unmasked in the course of that surveillance. So I think it's it's uh, all smoke and, and no fire. Bill, a bipartisan um, congressional uh, delegation wanted to make some amendments to the bill and, and failed. Uh, California Democrat Zoe Lofgren warned the government was gathering, quote, the content of your phone calls, contents of your emails, content of your text messages, video messages, and searching them for crimes that have nothing to do with terrorism. This is about the allegation that Americans' emails, phone calls, and communications get vacuumed up in the process of what the surveillance networks are doing. It is, and, and, and indeed, uh, Representative Lofgren and others have been making these uh, points for, for a long time, and I, I have great sympathy w- uh, for them. 
The problem with the technology, as the metaphor indicates, is that it's vacuum cleaner-like, so it doesn't distinguish at the initial stages of collection between Americans and uh, non-Americans, foreign persons abroad. The objective is to collect on the foreign persons, but incidentally, uh, Americans' communications are collected. I think we've come to a point in our in our uh, uh, national security affairs that most of us are willing to accept the collection, and the, and the greater attention has to be focused on what is done with the material that's collected. So the bill that actually uh, passed does relatively little to ensure protection for that incidentally collected information. The effort by Lofgren and others to amend the bill was to insert far greater controls on the ability of the government to go into the collected material to look further at what its contents are. Uh, It's a a serious uh, set of concerns, and I think the only saving grace of the bill that is going to probably be signed by President Trump next week is that it has another six-year sunset. So it's not a permanent authorization. Congress will have to uh, come back and take another look at this set of questions, at least within the next six years. So, Bill, another thing that opponents say is that there are too many exceptions to uh, the bill's requirement that unless it's related to national security, the FBI or or the NSA doesn't have to get a court order, Um, that the FBI doesn't have to apply for a warrant when national security is involved or cases where it believes they're a threat to life or serious bodily harm. Is that too wide an exception? I think that exception is okay. You know, so the the way it's framed, of course, is serious national security or threat to life or or serious harm to property. I think that kind of exception has always existed in our laws so that material that's in the hands of the government that needs to be further evaluated in those circumstances can be. Otherwise, the Bureau or another agency would have to obtain a warrant from a from a federal judge to do so. So I think that's a fairly norm, uh, narrow exception. The, the broader one is to allow the, the FBI and others to continue to look at the collected material so long as they're not using it in, in a criminal case. And that's uh, that worries Lofgren and others, I think, for good reason. Six years is a long time uh, to wait if there are, you know, privacy concerns uh, attached to this. Is there any other way that this that some of these problems can be cured before the bill sunsets? Well, there is, of course, Congress can always uh, take up a new uh, legislative measure. I think one of the things that made this uh, set of corrections tantalizingly close to fruition was the alignment of uh, sort of libertarian conservatives in the Republican Party and civil liberties advocating liberals in the Democratic Party. This is not the first time their interests have coincided, but it's one where they, they nearly got it done this time. And I think, indeed, had the calendar been stretched out a little bit further and had President Trump not interfered with his confusing and, and uh, conflicting set of tweets, uh, they may well have uh, gotten the job done. So, uh, you know, if they do approve this finally and the president signs it next week, I doubt that anything is going to happen immediately to try to revisit these issues, but uh, perhaps after the 2018 election. Thanks so much, as always, for being here. That's 
That's William Banks, and he is a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Intel CEO Brian Krasinich pledged transparency in an open letter on the company's website about plans to restore confidence in the security of customer data after the disclosure of a design flaw in its chips. But the transparency the two key U.S. senators and some shareholders want is transparency about his sale of close to half of his direct holdings in Intel late last year, netting proceeds of about $24 million, a sale made before that public disclosure sent Intel shares tumbling. Democratic Senator Jack Reed and Republican Senator John Kennedy are pushing the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department to investigate whether this was insider trading, and a shareholder suit was filed on January 10th. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, what brings attention to this stock sale as possible insider trading? Hi, June. Good to be with you again. Um, so I, I guess there are two things, right? One is the timing uh, and one is the size, right? So uh, Mr. Krasinich, um had in place a sort of a prearranged uh, schedule of sales of the stock, right? So on a routine uh, basis, uh, his shares, I think 28,000 or so, were meant to be sold uh, every February, uh, every April, uh, and every June. Uh, and that was the case in 2015, uh, 2016, and most of 2017. Uh, but then suddenly in October, uh, he changed uh, the plan uh, and arranged for a much larger number of shares to be sold. In fact, close to, it seems, 10 times as many shares to be sold, cutting in half his total holdings. Uh, and the timing of that was you know, shortly before the public announcement of the new vulnerability that had been discovered uh, in uh, the microprocessors that Intel uh, produces. So that's what raises at least a suspicion. It doesn't prove anything. More has to be looked into in order for anything to be proved. But it at least raises an eyebrow because of that, that timing and, again, the, the, the sheer size of the transaction. Intel said the share was made, the sale was made pursuant to the prearranged stock sale plan that you uh, mentioned. Um, what about the fact that this brought his ownership down to the minimum he's required to hold under company rules? So that, that's that's definitely an important piece of the story uh, as well, and it kind of goes. It's sort of the, the the kind of corollary to the to the sheer size of the transaction. So Intel is is sort of both telling the truth and uh, speaking of falsehood when they say that the sale was done according to the plan. Um, the problem, what they're what they're hoping, we think, I gather, is that we will think they're talking about the plan that's been in place since 2015. But that's just not true because the plan itself was changed in October. So it was done according to quote unquote the plan, but the plan as of October was a much different plan than that of 2015, 2016, and the first half of 2017. Again, that doesn't show that he did anything wrong. All of this might be above board. He might have an innocent explanation. But the fact is that, nevertheless, the, the fact that the plan was changed when it was is highly, you know, kind of eyebrow-raising. And then, as you suggest, the sheer size of the number that were sold off. Again, usually it's only 28,000 shares. This time it was uh, 246,000 shares, approximately, in addition to 644,000 options, uh, which, again, brings down his holdings to um, by more than 50% down to the absolute minimum that he's required by the firm to hold. So, Bob, what do, regula- what do regulators look for in an investigation of this type? 
Well, they'll look for other indicators um, as to, you know, whether there's some innocent explanation. Right? The, 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 the problematic explanation would be that, you know, he finds out, right, Every all the insiders to the firm find out about this vulnerability. Uh, they realize that once they go public with that information, that the, sh- the stock price will take a hit because a lot of people will sell off some of their shares. So in order to sort of beat the market sell-off, those insiders who hold shares of their own sell while the price is still high in order to avoid the loss. They're looking for indications that that was what was happening. Uh, and again, the circumstantial evidence certainly points to some such motivation. That being said, it's so obvious that it's very hard to believe that somebody with the sophistication of Mr. Krasanich would not have known that. And, and so they're, they're going to be, I'm sure, very interested to see whether there's some innocent explanation uh, 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 for the sell-off. And, and there might be, right? I mean, again, it's so flagrant if there isn't uh, an innocent explanation that then the mind will be boggled by the sheer stupidity, right? No, nobody, you know, it, it'd be hard to imagine anybody with this man's degree of sophistication and knowledge of the securities laws would, would, would actually do something so flagrant. Um, so I'm sure they'll be bending, I'm sure SEC folk and DOJ people will be bending over backwards to find an innocent explanation for this, but circumstantially at present, it's hard to see what it would be. And likely advising by very sophisticated securities lawyers here too. Now, Exactly. Let's say let's say the SEC and the DOJ pass on any kind of uh, charges. Would the in, would the <laughs> well, I, I, no? I, I was I'm posing that as as a real uh, question. Oh, I know. Would uh-huh. the investigation be rigorous in a shareholder suit? Would they have access to more information over a longer period of time? Yeah, I mean, under the right circumstances, you could certainly get private litigation, uh, and um, there's no reason to think that in discovery, uh, right, the discovery phase uh, of any uh, uh, sort of process of litigation that might might sort of ensue in the event that private parties uh, bring uh, private suits, there's no reason to think that the discovery phase of the uh, litigation wouldn't uh, uh, uncover all sorts of things, right? I mean, the court would, would demand that all sorts of relevant information be uh, uh, disclosed, uh, as long as it could be done in a manner that didn't, you know, sort of compromise the security of the company. But that's always easy to do if, if, for no, if in no other way than to have a so-called in-camera uh, examination of evidence. That would be a case where you know, the camera here is like the, 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 as in chamber, right, the, the court chamber. So it in other words, the judge or the court would actually be able to uh, uh, look at the information without disclosing it to a broader public. Um, given that safeguard, it's it's quite possible, right, for private litigants to get hold of all sorts of uh, information that might be helpful in determining actually whether this was an innocent sale uh, or, or, or otherwise. Only about 45 seconds here, Bob, but mm-hmm. remember the Equifax sales that mm-hmm. came under yeah. suspicion. Mm-hmm. Does that show that this is a hard thing to nail down? Uh, I don't think it shows that it's hard to nail down. Um, I mean, it, it, it just—it's it, another. I guess what it, it shows is that you know this particular form of offense doesn't go away, right? I mean, now again, that's not to say that this has been an offense. I mean, it might be that there is an innocent explanation here, but it seems that even the most flagrant-looking um, uh, offense reminiscent transactions continue to occur in the same way, right, as they did back in the 1920s, 1930s, 40s, all the way, you know, as long as we've had securities laws. This is a classic, good old-fashioned insider trading case. And again, there might be total innocence here. It's just that, you know, until we get more information, uh, it looks highly suspicious uh, and remarkably crude, if I can put it that way. All right. Thank you for your insights, Bob. As always, that's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell Law School. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.